this is a spoiler. You can't listen you know. to this and not have spoilers. You need some serious explaining to do about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting book. It was kind of weird. So, I mean, it's a little bit older than maybe some of the things we've been reading. Oh, uh, Frankenstein? Yeah, that was maybe even older book than this, I think. Yeah, so the original came out in 1872, and who knows how long he was writing it, but it was one of his first books, I think, and it's set in 1868. Okay, so... What we've got going on is basically this guy, he's an Englishman and he's uh, out in a colony and it seems to have been sort of modeled on New Zealand and they're tending livestock and stuff and he's been settled there for a little while and uh, it's a typical sort of uh, English colony for the period. You know, there are natives and then there are Englishmen and they're taking things over and they're farming and they're introducing their animals and, you know, they're also missionaries. They're trying to convert the natives and anyway, he He's uh, been out doing his thing and he's noticed that there's other land, sort of, uh, there's another range over on the other side of this mountain. And he convinces one of the natives by bribing him with alcohol to take him over there, which he doesn't want to do at first, but he's able to be persuaded. And so they set out, they have a harrowing time and eventually the native uh, runs off and uh, leaves the guy because he's, uh, there's sort of a lore about this land over on the other side of the mountain. And the guy, nevertheless, is sort of determined to get over there so he keeps on trying and he goes down into a gorge and he has to cross a river and he sort of gets lost and has a, a tough time but eventually he makes it over there and what he finds is that there's this whole other sort of society over there and this society and and how it works is really the crux of the book and he you know is sort of taken in and they're sort of amazed by him because nobody ever gets over there even though they know about the natives on the other side of the mountain. Um, they never make it over anymore. But the customs that they have are very, very strange. And he starts to explore them as he gets over there. And there's some initial ones that you learn about that they treat illness as a crime. Bad health is a crime. And things that we would normally consider crime are actually considered to be the way we would consider health now. Um, <laughs> it's, it's very strange. And they have they treat them as sort of uh, misfortunes and uh, things that we would consider misfortunes as crimes. It's sort of Butler using this society to examine a lot of English customs. You pretty quickly realize he's, he's taken some shots at the church. There's a lot of Swiftian satire. And, you know, once he gets into Erewhon, the plot is pretty scant and more of it is sort of discussion about culture and things like that. But he does meet a girl and he's paraded around the society, sent to the metropolis. He meets the king and the queen and eventually things take a turn against him and it looks like he's going to be set up for a crime and he decides that he needs to get his girl Arowena and escape, which they eventually do in a hot air balloon. But in between there, there's a lot of examination of this culture. There's a lot of uh, other strange customs that Butler uses to sort of invert uh, English customs and norms and take some shots at them. And really, that's what this whole book is about, is about examining culture, examining the Darwinian ideas that were in the air at the time, and it's uh, examining the church. And there's a huge chapter
chapter on machines and uh, children and all kinds of things. So we can get into that. That's pretty much it, I think. Yeah, it's kind of like a Gulliver's Travel. One thing that, that still amazes me is that at the end, when he talks about, you know, when his subscription thing is to basically enslave the people, no matter what he had said before, I was completely appalled, even though I you know, like, didn't have an idea that he was a good person or anything like that. I was appalled and I thought, wow, this is I was surprised. Was anybody else like, hugely affected by that? <laughs> I was just like, what? I was, but I took, um, I mean, I'm, I'm reading through this book and it seems like, uh, I believe the main characters, he, he's not named, but I think I read that he's named in a uh, book after this as Higgs. So for simplicity, let's just call him Higgs. Agreed. So I thought Higgs was a pretty ridiculous character at the beginning because, you know, pretty much anyone he meets, he's trying to baptize. And <laughs> I don't think that Samuel Butler meant us to consider his voice as Higgs' voice. Because, yeah, especially at the end, it goes to absurdity where, like you said, Mary, the, the point is he's trying to get a subscription service in order to raise some capital, in order to go to Erewhon and kidnap the natives, basically, and bring them back to work in the Queensland. And once they're too tired and sick to keep working, they'll ship them back. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think it's pretty clear at some point that you need to sort of make use of your own moral agency with this book, because I started thinking at first, you know, he, well, he's just kind of inverting things. And you can find these stable uh, relationships as far as, you know, morality and, you know, the inversion of it and, and all of that. But actually, it seems like there are times when when Higgs is being used to play the straight man or play the outraged citizen against, you know, the upside down sort of Irwin customs, but then vice versa. Also, there are times when he's completely unreliable or, you know, when he's talking his missionary stuff, he's, he's clearly meant to be the force being satirized and the Erewhonians are playing the straight people against him. Yeah. As with the satire, it goes so far and, you know, at first you're like, whoa, how, that's so terrible that they would say that they would actually punish people for being ill. And then you start to think about it, you're like, mm, kind of <laughs> reward and punish people for physical prowess and for you know, certainly for mental illness, you know, so it, it's really not just a flip. I mean, I think that he's flipping it so that you actually examine your own society more deeply. It's one thing to say, oh, well, this is what they do. And aren't they terrible? Well, we're terrible. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we're just... I mean, that's right. Right there with uh, debates about welfare liberalism and uh, and all of that today. You know, are we you know going to leave people who don't succeed, you know, basically to their own devices, or you know, do concessions need to be made? It actually touches on some pretty lively issues for a book that was written just about 140 years ago or so. You know what my problem is? He escapes in a freaking balloon. <laughs> He escaped <laughs> Erewhon in a freaking balloon. I mean, when that happened, I was like, what the fuck? I mean, <laughs> meaning meaning that, okay, I kind of felt like I was being removed from reality and being put into a different dimension. And I, I couldn't understand, like, this guy is so untrustworthy. The narrator is so untrustworthy. The writer is so untrustworthy. I'm not saying that he isn't touching on majorly important issues and saying phenomenal things, flipping it and in reverse and all that. But he couldn't believe it. Wait a minute. I'm reading this and he's escaping in a balloon. I, I'm supposed to believe this? Well, it was the most modern technology that they had at the time for flight. I mean, if you're trying to, to raise the conversation, then what better way to loft it than put it in the air? Well, yeah, except that, <laughs> I mean, and then the queen is arranged, setting, they're building the balloon behind the king's back, 
it just became kind of too unbelievable at that point. I mean, I'm not discounting the whole book at all. There's some phenomenal stuff about machines, about Darwin, as we all know. But at the same time, I was kind of like, at that point, this really threw me. See, I thought you'd be uh, sympathetic, Laura, because if you recall that the reason he wasn't uh, like sent to death or prison in the first place was because of his beautiful blonde hair. You remember that part? <laughs> that pissed me off. That pissed me off. So, I mean, I know that he's making a comment. I know that's a beautiful editorial comment about how fucked up our society is. And he was commenting on Victorian society, yes? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you could say that about our society now. It's how you look, not who you are. I guess to find an overall, I was trying to find an overall frame for the books. They He talks about a lot of subjects. I mean, I, just going off my head, he talks about like morality and how it's inverted in era one. He talks about, uh, you know, mechanical systems and how they were outlawed. And that's why he gets his watch confiscated. He talks about reason. He talks about opinions and how people don't have any of their own. And of course, Darwin is at the background of all this. And I think even though it seems um, how his inversions seem ridiculous at first, I think the problem that he's trying to deal with is how we get moral agency out of brute mechanical systems. Where is the point of consciousness? Where do we ascribe moral agency to people or things? Because that theme is throughout when he first talks about how the Erewhonians don't believe in a morality like we profess it, but simply in like disease of the body being what you're condemned for. And it carries on through to their discussions of eventually outlawing machinery. And as ridiculous as it seems, I think it's less ridiculous in this you know day and age where we often give extenuating circumstances for what we perceive as moral defects. So when a crime is committed, we don't think of that person being responsible for it. We talk about, you know, they were abused as a child. They had, you know, low IQ. And in this book is sort of taking that to the absurd point of, well, if that's the case, where do we stop? Where do we ascribe moral agency? And it's it's not as simple as it seems. Yeah, it, the mechanistic conception of nature, he's investigating that as regards moral agency and the law and, you know, all of the things that, you know, the institutions that spring out of those views on moral agency and sort of undergird them or undergird moral agency and conceptions of it. And I think, you know, I mean, that was timely at that point. You know, it's much more complicated by where science and physics are these days. But in in many ways, as was shown in that Nagel or that article in The Atlantic that I posted and that Mary, I guess, shared as well, there's still some lively conversation going on about where the place of mind in the universe and the, in physical processes and whether or not we want to circumscribe that to humans alone or, you know, to the biological sphere. Wasn't this also the time when eugenics were becoming, like, because of Darwin, there was, like, this rise of the conception and people wanting to practice eugenics in the UK? Yeah, so I wrote something down about that. Because Galton was right uh, right around the same time he was publishing. Yeah. So I think that there's probably a lot to that also. And, you know, it's interesting that you can kind of take this forward to Camus because God died with Darwin, right? I mean, in a sense, creation was, was taken over by nature and nature was not the Christian God. And the issues that arise when you leave it to nature and not God. Which is interesting, too, now looking back, you know, at this point in time, because... It's certainly not been the case that 
those two things have been mutually exclusive at all. And the elasticity of uh, Christian narratives and different deistic views about God and, you know, so, you know, all the way to more new agey kinds of things that have uh, incorporated a lot of quantum physics. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a wide sort of inclination on the part of religion and, you know, maybe reversed on science too, to incorporate one another and sort of make sense of those things. And especially if you look at like Islam and, you know, how pervasive it's been and how widely it's spreading and popular it's become, it definitely seems that religion is not really sort of being necessarily hindered by science in the world today anymore. I think it, it definitely is obstructing a lot of Christian narratives, but other ones are finding ways around it. I wonder if you can overcome your creation myths, that there will be no God, no need for God, and that you move into a different place societally. It seems very important with, with Christianity, but maybe not so important with other religions. I don't know. As far as overcoming your creation myth? Yeah. The thing is that if Darwin basically made it okay to do away with Adam and Eve and the Christian creation myth, or put it forward that God did not create the world, or Darwinian thought, I mean, I think that Darwin still thought that God created the world. Yeah, Darwin explains how we got here, but he doesn't explain why, right? Yeah, and he doesn't really speak to the cosmological argument. Right? Yeah. There's an interesting reference, I think, to Darwin or criticism of Darwin when they talked about uh, the watch and finding the watch. And um, I think it was something that maybe Dawkins had pointed out, uh, but basically that a person ignorant of civilization, which the tribe of... They weren't ignorant, they become ignorant, which is interesting. We should talk about that later. But they could see a watch and notice that it was designed. And that was an argument of uh, intelligent design and intelligent design, right? So that you could tell that something like a watch must have a watchmaker. <laughs> you know, so it's a faulty metaphor, right? Right. Well, that was Paley, right? Yeah, Paley was the credit in this. Um, yeah, that idea of a watch being something designed and thus looking at nature also with an eye to a designer. All that's in here. Isn't that part of the Victorian fear of machines? Weren't they very frightened of the development of machines? I didn't know that. I'd read about that, or I'd read about that somewhere, that there was this fear of the evolvement of machinery and that kind of, I guess, anti-nature. Well, there was also a big sort of occult movement going on as well, right? And so there was a lot of technology was actually sort of a big part of that. There was a lot of investment of uh, equipment and the use of uh, artifacts and seances and rituals and things like that. So there was like this sort of blending area where, you know, the mysterious from a bunch of different sectors melded together <laughs> and, you know, gave birth to myth. The theosophists once again make their way into our uh, into our talk, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that there was a little bump in um, in alchemy also, and people were renewed in interest in alchemy. It's very interesting. You know what jumped out at me when they were discussing about putting people in jail who were ill? What jumped out at me was our societies, the way we dealt with the development of AIDS, because I know. I've talked with people before about the danger of making illness a metaphor, because that's what they did with AIDS when it first developed. And in a way, when you read about this uh, horrible approach where people are punished for that which they can't control, I'm quoting here, we kill a serpent if we go in danger by it, simply for being such and such a serpent in such and such a place. But we never say that the serpent has only itself to blame for not having been a harmless creature. 
its crime is that of being the thing which it is. But that is a capital offense, and we are right in killing it out of the way, unless we think it more danger to do so than to let it escape. Nevertheless, we pity the creature, even though we kill it. Yeah, I wrote that one down, too. I mean, and I was thinking, Jesus Christ, this is us. Like Mary was saying, this is us. There's um, there's another little bit. This is on 36%. Uh, I, don't, I don't like talking like this. But anyway, um, this is when the, the judge was uh, talking um, and he was giving that sentence. And he says, it's all very well and good to say that you came of unhealthy parents. You had a severe accident in your childhood, which permanently undermined your constitution. Excuses such as these are the ordinary refuge of the criminal but they cannot for one moment be listened to by the ear of justice. I am not here to enter upon curious metaphysical questions as to the origin of this or that, questions to which there would be no end where the introduction once tolerated, and which would result in throwing the only guilt on the tissues of the primordial cell or on the elementary gases. There is no question of how you came to be wicked, but only this, namely, are you wicked or not? As an aside, he had a, a big whiff of the Grand Inquisitor about him. I was going <laughs> to yeah, check if... Yeah, uh, <laughs> I thought of that. I thought of that. He sits the prisoner down and just starts to uh, to pronounce for like two or three pages. Like it ends with, you may say that your misfortune is to be criminal. I answer that it is your crime to be unfortunate. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he just needs to kiss I don't know, him. The next time I get in trouble, I'm going to say I'm going to blame the elementary gases, <laughs> <laughs> the tissues of the primordial cell. <laughs> it got very complicated for me when he was digging into the nature versus nurture sort of thing like that, and and where culpability lied. Because in light of the way those debates have sort of gone since then, and and where things sit today, it was difficult sometimes for me to figure out exactly whether he was making a satirical argument or whether he was sort of, you know, playing it straight. <laughs> I, I couldn't I couldn't always tell because that line is still so blurry for us today. Yeah, I think there's a balance here where he he needles a little bit his own culture, but at the same time it seems like he prefers some of the ideas. I mean, he walks around Erwan constantly impressed, you know, not just with the beauty of the people, but, you know, by their institutions. However, once he does, for example, go to the College of Unreason, he has to just go through cursory bits of information because he can't stand to linger on the hypothetic language that everybody is using or putting forward the absurd to strengthen your intellectual faculties. He he can only talk about it briefly and with a couple of examples. So, you know, he, he does have this tension, I think, where he's impressed by what they've created, but at the same time uh, struggles with what they... So for one example, he talks about justice. And they have a conception of a like a Greek or maybe a, a Roman actual material manifest, beautiful looking justice that lives in the world. And, you know, he's talking about, well, these are just the characteristics that men find valuable. And why can't you see that that's not important to have a physical flesh justice in the sky when you can just have these principles and it doesn't diminish them. And then she says something similar like, well, what about your God? Can't you see that that is just an amalgamation of human characteristics that are, and he's like, well, okay, but uh, she almost had me. But then I told her that I had a bunch of books to back me up. And she said that she also had a bunch of books to back her up. And they just kind of like drew a line in the sand and forgot about it and didn't talk about it anymore. So it's like they were both so close to just overthrowing, having a revolution in their thought, but then they stepped back from it. And I think that there's moments like that where it's alluded to that there's more of an answer or that the characters failed back from something. And then there's other times where it 
it's it's really is just a ludicrous uh, way to make you look at our justice system, say. Or as with the Book of Machines, something a little bit more interesting, which is like a planned apocalypse or a, a grading down of civilization and progress. There's that interesting quote where he was like, yeah, but can't you see that it's necessary for men to be self-driven and to overcome one another in competition for there to be progress? And the guy says, oh, yeah, surely. And so we hate progress. Well, if we're going to go into the Book of Machines, we should explain. I didn't explain very much about what what was going on there. So maybe we should say. That's a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have a lot going on. So maybe we can talk about that as well as the College of Unreason and also the statues that he first encounters. That was a beautiful. creepy statues. Yeah, I mean, that was a really. Freaked me out. mm -hmm. So, but yeah, we'll, we'll go wherever you want. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to go with, with any of it. Uh, I mean, the statues or the Book of Machines. I mean, what Nathan was talking about, about the judicial system. And one of the things that struck me about it was that uh, in numerous places, an official or even the narrator himself will suggest or kind of insist that people were law-abiding for the most part and that according to their principles, you know, they were very strenuous and observant. And what I took from that was that he's pointing to the way that prejudices sort of leak into bureaucracies and systems, um, whether or not we mean for them to. And regardless of how flawless your logic is or your system is and how devoid of errors or inefficiencies, if it rests upon whatever, you know, moral attitudes and, and sensibilities it rests upon, lay the foundation for everything that's going to go on after that. So it doesn't really, <laughs> it, it was reminiscent of so many debates we, we hear today about technicalities, good and bad, when you just sort of want to scream that it's just the whole system, the whole sort of assumption undergirding and foundationally, you know, sort of propping up the entire system. And then at the end, you know, just the absurd consequences that come out the other side. And he got at this with the College of Unreason a little bit that, you know, make you want to scream, you you know, if this is what comes of, you know, this sort of uh, complex, you know, apparatus that we've made, then what good is it? You know, should we not question these assumptions? One absurd example, which is real, that ignorance of the law isn't any protection, right? So you're just supposed to know all the law and not, you know what I mean? Or be inculcated within the law. And that's your crime if you haven't been and don't know better. And that's, that's English law. That's, you know, how things go in America. You know, that's, yeah, that's a great example. I mean, one of the ways he satirizes it in the novel is through this uh, birth formula. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Oh God. That was so weird. (laughs) Oh my God. I thought it was hilarious. To me, that was the funniest part of the book. Yeah, it got me thinking of weird ghost babies. I thought it was creepy. (laughs) (laughs) And there's so many more than are living. There's so many more. All trying to get people laid is all they're trying to do. (laughs) Pestering. Thank you, ghost baby. (laughs) All right, so we'll add the birth formula. Yeah, it was hard to tell sometimes if it's like the church that he's going after or if it's the legal system. I mean, I guess the church and, and the legal system and politics were all just so in bed together in that era, especially I do like the thought that technology calls to us, though. And Daniel, I think we talked a little bit about that idea that, you know, the world extrudes us and we extrude technology and we actually do it at the behest of the we are just part of the machine and the things that we extrude 
do something for the earth, not very good for, you know, <laughs> at this point, but that basically this movement is something that's not just in us. It's something that is so basic to life on earth that we don't even see it. We don't even, we don't understand what we're doing. You know, like the cuckoo putting its egg in another bird's nest kind of thing. The earth moves us forward to extrude technology that in some way the earth wants. It's an interesting theory. I'm not saying that I ascribe, ascribe to it, but I think that it's interesting to think of it that way. Yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it. I think that's kind of what the the book is fighting with, with this sense of purposeness, purposiveness in this random assortment that is the world and everything in it. And the Book of Machines is really interesting. I think that this is probably one of the most interesting chapters for me, having just read a little bit of uh, technology. And me and Dan, we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, Kevin Kelly's What Technology Wants, um, this kind of echoes some of it, that there's a, a continuum here that you can look at vegetable life and animal life and then also now see machine life and wonder about uh, the intelligence that might be in the future. And also the way in which we make the machines, that we support it. Like there's, there's this bit, he's talking about man and he says that man is such a hive and swarm of parasites. It's doubtful whether his body is not more theirs than his and whether he is anything but another kind of ant heap after all. May not man himself become a sort of parasite upon the machines, an affectionate machine tickling aphid. And I think that that's really interesting because it shows a way that we can look at something that looks dumb, like a calculator. But if you take it all together, you can see how we're propping it up and how there's a relationship and an extended self going on with all of the technology that we have. He talks about going back in time when the earth wasn't anything and losing all of your technological mind and you wouldn't be very well off. Or if everybody just lost technology. And there's science fiction out there now on this. But imagine all the technology dried up. We wouldn't last for six weeks, uh, he says in this. So I think that this is a kind of ahead of the time. Or it's interesting that things have moved so fast that even 100 years ago, it's still relevant um, or that we're still uh, just ahead of this. I'm not sure if it's like incredibly deep or and I'm just missing it or if it's just like some basic problem of logic, which I'm not smart enough to to explain. Because he talks about, um, I mean, in this book of machines, one of the things he talks about is uh, he wants to describe con or some matter of consciousness to machines. And he shows how machines progress. And he shows how, you know, even though we build machines and we feed machines and we, you know, lubricate their parts of oil, that it's not much different from nature. You know, how flowers reproduce requiring bees and how in order to attract bees, they have to be colorful. In order to detract enemies, they have to be poisonous. And I've heard the same argument as, you know, when people talk about, for instance, corn being the most successful life form on Earth because somehow it's convinced humans in order to reproduce it endlessly on like an incredible scale where just a couple thousand years ago it was this almost extinct plant. But ascribing that kind of, you know, anthropomorphizing matter to that extent, I'm not sure what extra information we get by saying that, you know, corn is now successful or corn got us to replant it a million times in the same way as machines got us to make them and feed them. I'm not sure what information we're gleaning from, from ascribing a will to these things. Yeah, that's an interesting point because it makes you examine the language we use to talk about it. And, you know, we talk about that language of wanting, of, you know, ascribing agency to something, you know, it, it's uh, something that we seem to do or, or we seem to tend to do just with 
without really thinking. It's just sort of a reflex. And, and maybe that's because it's the way that we think. And it's just part of our cognitive apparatus that we're going to project that outward onto the world. But I think you're correct. And what you're getting at is that it can be misleading in times. When Nathan mentioned Kevin Kelly, that's sort of one of my issues with him. And that book that he wrote, he definitely subscribes to that view that you're talking about, that technology does have wants and it has desires, it has a teleology, it has a direction it's going. And he is so convinced that that's, you know, a great direction for human beings that he thinks we have a moral mandate to increase the amount of technology in the world because it's going to increase complexity and it's going to increase human options. And for him, you know, the more options we have, the more freedom we have, the better life. And uh, what's also interesting is that he is a Christian. So he's an incredibly complex figure uh, vis-a-vis Butler in this novel. Let me quote this then, based on what you just said. This is page 108 to 109. A man's very soul is due to the machines. It is a machine-made thing. He thinks as he thinks and feels as he feels through the work that machines have wrought upon him, and their existence is quite as much a sine qua non for his as his for theirs. This fact precludes us from proposing the complete annihilation of machinery, but surely it indicates that we should destroy as many of them as we can possibly dispense with, lest they should tyrannize over us more completely. And not for nothing, but Stephen Hawking believes this as well. See, that kind of reminds me of, you know, people talk about how we've offloaded our intelligence onto Google. And, you know, he also talks about how we use machines as additional limbs and to, you know, be able to dig further, do all these things. But in a way, that's just like, it boils down to, I think, the sentence like, we are what we are, and our lives are made up of our experiences, which at this point include machines. And we can't, I don't think we can theoretically, you know, imagine our lives having removed all machinery from them. But I don't think that's extremely deep, because I don't think we can imagine our lives with removing some other aspect from them. Like, I can't imagine what I would be like with the assumption that my mother died you know, when I was born, for instance, because she makes up my life. (laughs) I don't know if you see where I'm trying to go with that. Yeah, I do. So Kevin Kelly, like uh, aside, you know, I think that there's something powerful about the metaphor so that it doesn't just give anthropomorphism. I think that it can actually get beyond anthropomorph. It can go beyond the person. What I see that this metaphor does, if it's working well, is that it actually moves beyond a human being and gets into being and how being works. And if you start talking about things as being, then you can see how plants be and animals be and technology is. And through that, you can get to this thing that is not like, well, does it have agency? But look at the question that we're getting to in the courtroom as well. Do we have free will at all? Does that even matter? Uh, Maybe there's just a physical explanation, not just a physical explanation, but you can see a physical explanation that runs through technology and people and plants and uh, animals. So I think that that puts something else onto the table. Because then if you're going to look at what we ought to do, as well as what laws and what we should be doing, then we really have to take all of these tendencies uh, together and look at uh, what's happening. Rather than saying that things are like people, I'd say that people are like other things and that uh, you can actually get a bit of freedom by looking at this extrapolated vision of how things are working out and how things are working in concert. Uh, That was another thing in the Book of Machines. You know, you can't just separate stuff out. You can't just take away the bees. Otherwise, everything kind of breaks down. It's a large, complex distribution of consciousness. 
consciousness that's going on here with each level. Then it's like religion. It's just a question of control. It's a question of man having control. Let's get down to Erewhon again, because that's exactly what... So taken this, they acted on it. And they did begin to have a museum of all the machines. For 500 years, they ramped down their use of technology until they went back 400 years worth of technology. And that's an uh, interesting application because you can see this happening in New England with Amish. They practice a certain kind of lifestyle that brings in technology, judges it, its fitness and uh, fairness, and then they decide to use it or not. And they are active. They have a morality about technology uh, rather than a more and more an update you know, kind of thing. So there are avenues and there are ways in which we can use technology and it's not just a, a torrent. So I think there's, there's something here and that it's still interesting because it applies to us, especially as like, I don't know, Westerners or whatever who have access to all the internets and things like that. Well, it's been, a, I mean, it's been a live issue for, I mean, we gave the example of Kevin Kelly, who's found a compatible way to adopt sort of Western religious narratives without, you know, sacrificing sort of technological society that we live in now. But uh, I mean, there are plenty who don't. And a lot of conscientious liberal Christians who write for the New Atlantist or the Hedgehog Review to extremists uh, who are just out there saying down with Western society. I mean, there's a lot of uneasiness to, you know, outright antipathy for the technological society and the complexity of automation and network and, and things like that that we've built up in our global system now and, and the way that that distributes human agency in ways that are opaque and complex and often, you know, sort of convoluted and difficult to parse morally. What's interesting to me, too, about it is that, uh, you know, that role of technology and of system and of, you know, the sort of networks of power is because it's complex, often left out of uh, the moral, the more sort of or overt public moral discussions that we have about politics and about uh, religion and things like that. But it's always there as, a, you know, a mechanism of power. Yeah, and of commerce. I think that a lot mm -hmm. of it get we don't think to to question progress, I think, a lot of the time because of the way because of our capitalist system. More is always better and you there always has to be growth and there always has to be more profit. And you know, if you look at various kinds of technology and wonder what they add and detract from your life. But obviously you can't go back. No one's gonna let you. Sure, you can move to Pennsylvania and try and be Amish, but that's not what your life, you know, I mean, unless it's what your life is, that's not what your life is. You know, that's not how the majority lives. See, I think we have a better understand or a, a more nuanced view of uh, progress these days as well. I mean, when this book was written, there was very much the aim that uh, evolution was a progress towards and seeing the huge technological leaps that were going on at the time, they saw progress as inevitable. Whereas now, I think the understanding of evolution itself is not something that's progressing towards, but simply organisms that are adapting to changing environments. And then as far as our technology goes, I think we'd be less inclined to say that, you know, we are a better, more progressive society than, or maybe you could say we're a more progressive society, but to say we're better than like a hill tribe because we have iPhones, I think that's a bolder claim that not everyone would make. That maybe we don't want to be a hill tribe, but just because, you know, we get our dopamine levels spiking every time we hear the buzz of our phone, that doesn't make us, you know, better people necessarily. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting because you're you're getting at that moral dimension that's injected into 
fate, which is a big theme in this in this book. You know, we inject that morality into you know these situations that, that which uh, you can't control, right? And that are just you know essentially mechanistic. If you know, at least from that Darwinian view, you know. There's a thing that I like. Um, this goes back a little bit, but this is about consciousness and other life. And it's uh, on my 73%. It talks about the potato and the uh, seller, you know, and the potato thinks to itself, I will have a tuber here and a tuber there and basically explaining the life of it. And then it says this, the potato says these things by doing them, which is the best of languages. What is consciousness if this is not consciousness? We find it difficult to sympathize with the emotions of a potato. So we do with those of an oyster. I would love to contrast that with a quote if I could find it about the language of hypotheticals, because it seems like that's the opposite, right? Yes, that's really good. Yeah, because the hypothetical language doesn't even deal with reality. It may, by the way of strengthening your mind against the absurd, help out in the real world. Because the hypotheticals is just for your head. It doesn't relate to anything in the world. If not, it would be theoretical. I didn't quite get that part. So if you want to delve into it a little more, I'd be... Is that page 107? Well, yeah, the point I was trying to make is that and I, you know, the language of hypotheticals was an interesting part because, you know, the satire, the satire that he's sort of presenting indicates that these academics, which I took it, you know, to be church flavored academics, uh, to, were, you know, their heads are so far in the clouds, you know, their hypothetical philosophies and, you know, they're so far detached from anything concrete and they're so far into the abstract that what they often end up confounding. <laughs> concrete situations and losing track of the way that the real world works and how to in the unreason, you know, as the counterpart to reason is meant as an antidote or something to, to the tyranny of reason. Or, but it's interesting what Nathan is saying is, you know, if you think about that potatoes roots inching towards the sun or, you know, inching through the earth, you know, as a sort of language, as a sort of expression, then, you know, that is like as concrete as it gets, right? It's not hypothetical. But of course, you need both. I mean, our whole technological world is not made out of know-how, you know, necessarily these days. I mean, it was, you know, in artisanal times and, but, you know, but the complexity of technology today is information technology and it's, it's, uh, it has its origins and hypothetical reasoning. <laughs> Alan Turing came up with all that stuff long before he could do it, you know, really do much with it. So did Charles Babbage. Is, is he like making, oh, by like pointing out the function of language in this way, is he sort of undermining his own thesis? I'm just thinking about when he describes this potato as striving towards something. I mean, physically, if we try to, you know, be objective about it, there's just a bunch of, you know, atoms and particles interacting with each other. And we see this shoot as, you know, the shoot of the potato striving towards the light, and we describe it and anthropomorphize it that way. But really, we sort of do that with everything well, I'd like to contrast that with what he says, because um, he, he talks, he kind of talks about this. He says that imagine also that something else is watching a man kill and eat a sheep. There would be a completely mechanistic explanation for why he did that and why he continues doing it. And seen so, everything kind of just has this objective view. So, you know, the oyster creeps, you know, the men eat and the technology proliferates. So there may be an agency internally because we certainly feel that 
that way internally in our thing, but outside there's none of that. And so if you kind of like play in that realm, then, you know, there's explanations for things, but it's not the whole picture. And actually, I think that this idea of two worlds is a part of Erewhon. This is just reminding me, I want to talk about the musical bank, but this, uh, this other thing of like, there's two different kinds of worlds. There's a level of explanation and there's the one that we live in. So what's it like to be a bat? I don't know, but you know, we presume that there's something because I presume that other people have lives in their head, you know, even though I don't know them myself. So it's not, it's not so hard to see how that, how the explanation misses something or how the explanation could also hint to more depending on how you look at it. Well, and it's not like you never have a clue from nature that there is desire and agency. I mean, if you've ever owned a dog or a cat, your dog wants to go play with a ball. You know, there's something there. It's not like we're the only ones who have it. Is he pointing out that, you know, language, we're tied to language, we can't get away from it, but it is not, you can't use language to get at, you know, some ultimate reality, something in itself? Well, I think there's different languages that he's talking about, and I'm not sure that he's talking about any language capital L. I mean, as far as the hypothetical uh, language goes, that's something that belongs to the school of unreason. And this potato language is more of a, he's basically saying doing is the best saying. And that's something that we've heard elsewhere uh, in our readings. It's uh, a notion that I've just picked up and I I enjoy it. So it was interesting to see it here too. Doing things is saying something. I'm not sure that says anything about language in the big and the small. I think we're taking him a little bit further than he took it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's reminded me of one of my grandmother's great scoldings of uh, actions speak louder than words. And uh, there's a, a bit on 74, he talks about if we want to just come up with a chemical or mechanical explanation, then we also have to try it with ourselves then. If that's all that we say that everything is, then we've got to do that with ourselves, otherwise it doesn't hold up. And he says, is there not a molecular action to thinking, a dynamical theory of the passions? Is that deducible? Strictly speaking, should we not ask what kind of levers a man is made of rather than what is his temperament? How are they balanced? How much of such and such will it take to change him and make him do so and so? And I think that that's getting down to it too, because we, just like in the court system, we recognize that there's a cause and effect balance on our lives, but how far do we go in acknowledging it? Do we not acknowledge it at all and just take people having done what they do? Or can we say, well, with certain kinds of restraints, and we should also, by the way, talk about the soul crafters, the straighteners. I think that is an incredibly interesting um, uh, part of Erewhon. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Best shrinks ever. <laughs> Come on over and beat me. Yeah, please. <laughs> Get me out of my funk. I need to be beaten. <laughs> Get me out of my funk. Yeah, I, I'll advocate for them, you know. <laughs> for the straighteners? You're going to advocate for the straighteners? I, I'm going to advocate for the straighteners to some extent because <laughs> I, I feel like, especially, oh man, with child rearing. You know, oh, God. You know, but you all know of it. It's the connotation post gay rights, you know, oh. of those places <laughs> where they would send people to make them straight. Like, I read it and I was like, oh, bad choice of word, you know? Yeah. We'll straighten you out, gay boy. Interesting. Yeah, that didn't occur to me. Yeah, 12 months of spanking. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, the reason I think they're interesting is because not by their practice, really, but just I think that Erewhon is on to something. 
you know, it's kind of like a social services, really. Some some kind of like not cops that you call when there's a problem and that people can show up, assess the situation, give you some, you know, like good advice person to person. It seems like it seems like an interesting uh, protocol that should be around, but we don't really see it. We tend not to have like that personal to person thing anymore. It's much more bureaucratic and you get lost in the process of get taken to jail or go to court or go to prison. And there's not like a, a lot a chance for someone to come in and intervene. Well, let's say a little bit about what they are. So basically, the straighteners are these people that come in when you're sick with a fit of immorality or bad conduct or the temptation towards bad conduct or immorality. And through a sort of series of corrective prescriptions having to do with your actions, your diet, and usually some corporal punishment, they straighten you out and they, you know, basically get you back on the path to good conduct and behavior. And this is sort of treated in Erewhon the same way we would treat a doctor or something like that. I mean, they they view it as a misfortune, not as a deliberate action. Yeah, and it's important that health in Erewhon is judged not by the physical, which is you're to blame for your sicknesses, but by the mental. And you're not to blame for your desires or your passions or robbing people. And I think you're right. I think they're, you know, I think they're onto something a little bit there, you know, with both the sort of confidentiality that, you know, maybe you would have. I, I think there was even an argument in there he, he put in about uh, that the straighteners should have perhaps a confidential non-disclosure agreement about health as well. So people could admit when they were sick because that was always a problem. But um, I think that you are onto something about their acknowledgement that behavior as well is affected by the environment. And there was perhaps, you know, especially in a society dominated by the church, a bit of an aversion or an, a nervousness about attributing any influence to behavior outside of, you know, the agent themselves, that there was anything beyond. Now, are we talking about like Samuel Butler's church or the church of the guy of Higgs, what we'll call him? Uh, or because I don't remember. I was just thinking about the church and, you know, the late 19th century. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Because I, I just was thinking, I don't think that there's any semblance of a church in Erewhon or any. Besides the musical banks. Besides the musical banks. Yeah, the banks. Let's talk about those, uh, the musical banks. Does anyone understand it really well? I mean, I understand that there's a certain kind of tokenism that goes along with it. No one really takes money. It's more of a procedure of going in and having dual accounts so that people have a musical bank account and then they have their actual property. Right. You put your money in the plate and you pay lip service on Sundays, but you, you know, you go out in the street and you spend the real capital. So, you know, you can go in and buy the morality that you want, but you go out and you spend what is used in your society. I think it's just the ineffectuality of, of the church in any real sense at his time. Yeah. You have these two currencies. I read a book recently about what the internet means for artists, and you could extend it to a social or an artistic capital that people have that's not any good out in the real world, like when people want to make <laughs> artists do things for exposure, right? <laughs> So, you know, an artist can't live off exposure, but they're expected to be paid in this sort of capital in the same way that, you know, you can't in the same way that a holy person who follows scripture, you know, will be paid in this aura of holiness around them. But they're still going to starve to death like everyone else if they don't <laughs> buy things with real money. Yeah, it's the old you give us money, you know, and we'll pay you back with your soul. You know, we'll, we'll pay you back with, uh, you know, something that's going to happen in the afterlife. Buying indulgences. 
These hadn't really occurred to me. I, these connections make sense to me, but they didn't occur to me at first. I, I, I didn't grow up Catholic or within. I mean, I, I'm familiar with tithing, etc., but uh, it's not. It's not first nature. Well, there was a part when he talks about that nothing in the currency. You know, everybody kept currency in the musical banks, but everyone pretty much recognized that it was not. You know, a legitimate currency. The people who worked there didn't want to be paid in it. And everyone knew that it would not be anything you could buy your bread with. You know, it was nothing that you could spend out in the real world that would keep you alive. But it was a sort of convention. And it was very dangerous to be seen, you know, as, you know, flouting the musical banks and not have any money there. Yeah, and I remember they don't take any money out. They just give you like a random handful of coins or pieces. And then you put that back in the plate and then that's uh, that's kind of the process. But you showed up and you were there and there was a transaction and everybody saw you. Right. And there was beauty. That's the other thing. Oh, yes. It's kind oh, of yeah. like Baroque beauty. Yeah. Yeah, I was really impressed with the way that he noticed the power of architecture. You know, I guess, you know, it's more obvious if you're living in England where there's all those beautiful cathedrals and just the power, you know, the aesthetic power is enough to sort of impress you. Well, think about the political power that got them built in a time when it wasn't very easy to build. You certainly got all the labor you wanted for just about nothing. Well, you get those natives to do it you know, <laughs> after you've converted them. There's another interesting thing. This kind of ties into the the actions and words or whatever. Uh, but this is uh, at 64%. Money, they say, is the symbol of duty. It is the sacrament of having done for mankind that which mankind wanted. Mankind may not be a very good judge, but there is no better. Yeah, it says mankind. And I guess that kind of gets into maybe some of the problematics of evolution as well. You know that there's not really a there's not really a judge that what what's occurred is kind of what was permitted or what did happen happened. And the same thing with, you know, the potato just speaking by its actions. I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, that money is this. It looks to a person like you've got an individual unit of some freedom, but taken as a whole, it's just a distribution of energy that makes the whole organism build stuff, you know, quite remotely from any person's knowledge about it. It's interesting, too, to me to think about. I, I think it's even from an evolutionary perspective, it's been complicated now since he wrote, because back then you could talk about appearances and things like that being fake and be very, very cut and dry. Whereas now, you know, if you think about us as sort of intellectual creatures and the environments we live in now, it's very much a sort of information environment. It's an environment of appearances. You know, we're surrounded by sort of fluctuating appearances and rapid fire changes in social conventions and screens and things like that. And so we have an environment that's very much open to change now. And a lot of it is just fiat. It's presentation. And so it's much more difficult to consider all of that just fake now and not think about it as an environmental factor that affects the organism in the same way that four walls or, you know, a forest does. Well, uh, I, I was just looking here. Uh, this is another bit of evolution that I thought was... He says, uh, the Aronians say there was a race of men tried upon the earth once who knew the future better than the past, but they died in 12 months from the misery which their knowledge caused them. And if any were to be born too <laughs> prescient now, he would be called out by natural selection, culled out. 
before he had time to transmit so peace-destroying a faculty to his descendants. That's great. Yeah, it really is. Did you guys think, I mean, I, I thought he was actually, I mean, as sort of an aphorist, he was very talented. Uh, that was maybe the strength of this book for me. He had a lot of great little quips and one-liners. And- How about the statues? We haven't talked about those yet. Uh, so, okay, now this is gets this gets a little interesting because there's a deep history here. All right. So these statues are basically what seven figures, uh, three times taller than a normal man, uh, situated near each other. They are grotesque, ugly, vulgar, and yeah, and their heads like hollow in the back, so that their mouths can whistle the wind uh, as it passes through them, and it makes this. I thought that sounded great. Terrifying moan, <laughs> and that is what uh, Chabuk does at the very beginning. He imitates these one of the figures as best he can by making a horrible face and opening his mouth and making a moan and signifying uh, that I don't know what his hands were. He, he held up 10 fingers as to signify 10, but I'm not sure what that ended up being. So those statues were built by the earlier peoples of Erewhon. I guess this was before the turn away from machines and the, I don't know what you would say, the devolution or, you know, the ramping down that they chose to do. And they, those are there. And they were used to be, they used to sacrifice the people like Chabuk to satiate the gods of vulgarity, basically. And so to keep their people pure and beautiful. And that's why Chabuk was afraid to go with him in the mountain pass. It wouldn't go further. I think there's a ancestral dread about the place um, because they would be sacrificed. He would be killed. Oh, yeah, that, that wasn't the, st- those weren't the statues I was thinking of, but I'm glad you brought them up because I had kind of forgotten about them. I was thinking about the statues that were all over town that people would have made of themselves. Oh, oh yeah. Right. And they got, they got so numerous that it, you begin to pay people not to make your <laughs> statue. I just thought that the, the vanity, like when, when vanity goes wild. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that reminds me. I mean, I remember looking at a um, discussion on YouTube uh, at an uh, MIT class on this book, and it was a class on utopian literature. This book is often discussed in classes on utopia and utopian literature. Are you aware of any of that, uh, Daniel? Yes. Um, so I haven't read Sir Thomas More's Utopia, but apparently that's a big part of what he's satirizing here. Yeah. Right, because nowhere, because utopia actually translates to nowhere. Does it? Right? <laughs> I didn't the, know the that. Word, yeah, the, the Greek word um, utopia means nowhere. So Erewhon is a play on utopia. Oh, I think I got it right then in the email because I thought that Erewhon was nowhere. Backwards. That's great. Backwards and with the W and H flipped. I liked the flip stuff. The Rosbinors. Right. So there's Jones Robinson and then there was Wyram, so Mary. And I think that, that was obviously a, the woman he seduced. So he seduced the mother of God. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one that eventually uh, flees in a balloon from Arowina. Arowina. Um, in doing all this, I just saw Anna Hor or Hor Anna the entire time. If you look yeah. at the letters. <laughs> Well, I tried to f- forever to figure out what that was an anagram for, and I didn't. You know what the balloon? Oh. No, the Arohanna, uh, and there was another one. I, I tend to think that the first names or the women's names he didn't play with so much as he didn't directly transcribe something like Smith or Robinson or Mary like he did in other places. There's actually an article on the use of names in this book by Samuel Butler. Yeah, I didn't read it because I wasn't really focusing on the names, but there's a whole essay on his names, on how he uses names and transposes them and works the letters around and stuff. Oh, it looks like it would be Grundy if it was flipped. 
Yeah, that maybe that was as close to the church as you get because there was the high and the low Yagranites. And then there were, I think, a group of people all together who had a different belief against them, and they were kind of naysaying. He he talks a lot about in this uh, in the story that even though the things that he's seeing are long established, there was a brewing going on in Erewhon. Things were changing, or things had been not the way that they had been, or that people had stopped coming to things as often, or that the College of Unreason was you know becoming out of fancy. So there was just a slight change that was happening that I think is interesting too. Um, this place had a Life on its own. It wasn't merely a static place, I suppose. Well, and the thing when they when the people became vegetarian, and then the uh, scientists came out and said that uh, plants suffered too. So, <laughs> so they basically went back to it. But the way that people would get around it to, to be able to eat meat, <laughs> right? Really like that. <laughs> So Yudgren, I had a I had a quote here from her. This is at fifty four percent, just in the third paragraph. Once chapter seventeen starts, take her all in all. However, she was a beneficent and useful deity who did not care how much she was denied so long as she was obeyed and feared, and who kept hundreds of thousands in those paths which make life tolerably happy, who would never have been kept there otherwise, and over whom a higher and more spiritual ideal would have had no power. So I wonder about that right there, that a more spiritual ideal wouldn't have worked to hold these people together. It seems like they had to have a manifest God, that it wouldn't have done to just have a a quality, say. It had to be someone that was feared and obeyed. Oh, utopia. (laughs) Well, if your philosophy is all about the fitness of bodies, then you're not going to care that much about, you know, that's going to be the thing that's important. Well, this goes to the College of Unreason, too. They want to foster, and he was saying this is true in England as well, not to encourage the people who are brilliant, but to sufficiently, like, compress the brilliant so it doesn't get out of control and limit people and put them in the paths of life that are, you know, advantageous to to the whole. And so it's not necessarily trying to cultivate the next big whatever as much as trying to keep things going about as they are known and not try and question too much. In both cases, uh, if you're doing that, if you're not being critical in a college or if you have a deity that you just, you know, absolutely believe in, because they absolutely believe in her, um, or they they act as if they do, which is the same, you know, but it's not reflective either, and it's not replaceable by some other ideal. So you just have to kind of accept it. Maybe that's one way to get a utopia. It was somewhat prescient of the uh, decline of the humanities in our current university system, isn't it? Universities are now basically trade schools. Yeah, well, it seemed that there was a humanities flood whenever, I mean, I just remember going at university and looking around, and it, it had already seem like the bubble had bursted on, I don't know, whenever I, I was there, I realized pretty quickly that I'd have to come up with something on a on a side uh, if I wasn't going to be a, an engineer or uh, someone with a science uh, background or something. Th- like MFA programs, and you could graduate with a master's in literature and or a doctorate and still not have a job. Yeah. I mean, I guess everything uh, the humanities sort of do really falls under the broad category of information, right? Which is something that it's hard to get people to pay for anymore. Universities can write your paycheck, but then, you know, they're graduating more students than they can employ. And it's kind of sad because it means that, you know, people are now in charge essentially of their own educations again, it seems like in some ways. And it's not... uh... Doesn't foster creativity (laughs) that it did in the past. 
Yeah, it yeah. is interesting how, um, like, what we're talking about, how, like, economic interests have hijacked uh, what it means to be progressive. And the reason that, you know, this whole science tech engineering push is happening is because we're, we're told that this is how to make humans better and humanity better, is that if we just progress technologically enough, that's all that's important. And that it's not just that the, I mean, of course, we need scientists, we need engineers, but it's this sort of prevailing logic, you know, like when Peter Thiel goes around telling people to, you know, just drop out of college, don't even go, drop out of school, just watch edX courses <laughs> until you can have your own startup. It's, you know, it's like there's this logic that not only, you know, is that stuff not necessary to making money, it's you don't need it. You, you can be an engineer and be a scientist and have nothing to do with any of that stuff because it's not important. As if your inner life is not important. Right. And as if you're going to, you know, foster an inner life with math classes. Sorry, kids. Yeah, well, not without the other agency, I think. I mean, I think that, you know, that is a great tool. You know, I think about uh, Feynman's quote, what's his first name? Richard Richard Feynman. He had that quote, it said, it's fun to imagine physics. You know, but I think you first got to have that creative thing there in order to use the template with. Um, you need a hand to hold the tool, I suppose. Well, it puts the ends back into question and not just the means, right? It's like, you know, what is this society mm. for? What are other people for? I mean, what is, you know, what kinds of visions can we have for the world and for ourselves and our relationships beyond just, you know, technical efficiencies, you know, as far as how we get pleasure delivered or sustenance delivered, you know? I mean, everything between that is, you know, where stories happen. It's where personality happens. Okay, I got a quote here from everything you guys are saying. It better not be mine, uh, but I think I, I think I have it too. It, it Maybe, I don't know. Page no, 97. Man. Life, they urge, would be intolerable if men were to be guided in all they did by reason and reason only. Reason betrays men into the drawing of hard and fast lines and to the defining by language. Language being like the sun, which rears and then scorches. Extremes are alone logical, but they are always absurd. The mean is illogical, but an illogical mean is better than the sheer absurdity of an extreme. Uh, I have another one. It's This is a little longer, but I think there's a lot good here. This is, is at 38%. Let me um, jump back. I think I'm near the beginning of a chapter. Yes, chapter 12, Malcontents. The third paragraph it begins, there is no alternative open to us. And says, it is idle to say that men are not responsible for their misfortunes. What is responsibility? Surely to be responsible means to be liable, to have to give an answer should it be demanded. And all things which live are responsible for their lives and actions should society see fit to question them through the mouth of its authorized agent. I think that's interesting there because... The agent is a part of the society. Anyway, yeah. uh, this last little bit is what I think is really interesting. It's this full paragraph. What is the offense of a lamb that we should rear it and tend it and lull it into security for the express purpose of killing it? Its offense is the misfortune of being something which society wants to eat and which cannot defend itself. This is ample. Who shall limit the right of society except society itself? And what consideration for the individual is tolerable unless society be the gainer thereby? Wherefore should a man be so richly rewarded for having been son to a millionaire, were it not clearly provable that the common welfare is thus better furthered? We cannot seriously detract from a man's merit in having been the son of a rich father without imperiling our own tenure of things which we do not wish to jeopardize. If this were otherwise, we should not let him keep his money for a single hour. We would have it ourselves at once. For property is robbery, 
but then we are all robbers or would-be robbers together and have found it essential to organize our thieving as we have found it necessary to organize our lust and our revenge. Property, marriage, the law as the bed to the river, so rule and convention to the instinct. And woe to him who tampers with the banks while the flood is flowing. I think that goes to the extremes as well, right? The mean being the bed of the river and any change of that being a possible alternate, you know, an alternate course and being overwhelmed by the rushing tide of convention. Yeah, he definitely seemed like he was on the side of individualism and sort of uh, even capitalism would be sort of maybe going too far, but definitely the enlightenment. First part of what you said there reminded me of um, Sugar from No Country of Old Men <laughs> being responsible for, you know, every action up to this point, you know, led up to this point. You're responsible for every single action uh, throughout your entire life. Call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, there was another part I wanted to bring up about the school, the Colleges of Unreason, um, after sort of railing on the death of the humanities. Because he he actually kind of skewers academics in a pretty uh, pretty incisive way at a few points I thought too, which gets at maybe some of, or at least some of the things that irritate me about it, um, and I think irritate some other people too. He says I was introduced to many of the professors who showed me every hospitality and kindness. Nevertheless, I could hardly avoid a sort of suspicion that some of those whom I was taken to see had been so long engrossed in their own study of hypothetics that they had become the exact antithesis of the Athenians in the days of St. Paul. For whereas the Athenians spent their lives in nothing save to see and hear some new thing, there were some here who seemed to devote themselves to the avoidance of every opinion with which they were not perfectly familiar, and regarded their own brains as a sort of sanctuary to which if an opinion had once resorted, none other was to attack it. And then he talks about how they are suspicious of ever giving an opinion on anything because they don't want to give themselves away. And even if you do pin them down on a subject, uh, they'll usually quote from some book and then do do so while giving indication that they have reservations about what they're even telling you. And so there's this sort of um, squirreling themselves away into this self-contained little society that doesn't have so much to do with the world and refusing to take part and, you know, speaking their own language that no one else can understand. It makes me think about the, the modern trend of irony, that no one will fess up to actually feeling, believing, whatever, anything. It's always ironic that, you know, statements are made through irony now. But I find it tedious a lot of times. You know, it's like, all right, enough. <laughs> Just tell me what you really think. It's kind of an anti-romanticism, yeah, where yeah. you're uh, hiding from emotion, yeah. Yeah, because it's so disingenuous so much of the time. There was an onion uh, thing one time <laughs> where it's like, did you see this with the, the kids go to Applebee's, ironically? <laughs> he's like, I'm hungry, let's go to Applebee's. And the other guy's like, yeah, let's go to Applebee's. And he's like, no, let's really go to Applebee's, guys. <laughs> And then they go and like the older people are sitting behind them and they're like, these fuckers can't even enjoy a cheeseburger without, you know, having to be self-deprecating about it. Without growing a fucking beard over it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really tired of ironic facial hair. Really, really tired of it. But I think that the device socially is that we do really want that cheeseburger, but we're also afraid of social shaming. So the irony is how you get around. Oh, that. that's interesting because that you because that's like a cloak. You could be one of two ways under it, right? You could not want it, or you could want it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I think that kind of goes to what you were saying, Mary. Like, I just want to hear what you think. Just be straightforward <laughs> with it, and let's not do a half step here. 
Yeah. All right, but that's kind of my problem with this book. Ooh, all right, cool. Yeah, we're 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 too uh we're getting we're getting close. So let's uh let's get our final thoughts in here. Yeah, yeah. Let, let, this is a good start. Lay it on us, Laura. I'm just saying that that was kind of my problem with this book that I was, you know, I had to go around. It's like the idea where he's like the name Erewhon and these names that he fashions backwards. I have to go around to get to the point, to the philosophical point or to the reasoning he's making. And it just really, sorry, Daniel, I love you, pissed me yeah. off. <laughs> <laughs> but that's satire, right? I mean, satire is not irony, right? I understand that, but it just, it, it was exhausting after a while. And I was like, yeah. just, what are you saying here? I think that it was an urge to think, right? It was a, it was, it's a, it's a call to think about you know, I, I'll show you the worst in a society that is, at first glance, diametrically opposed to ours. Then you have to start Realizing digging in to figuring out. Yeah, start digging in and, and take a real look at, at how you live. And and that's reasonable as you're going through it. But then, like I say, said at the beginning, when he escapes in the balloon, and I understand it's, you know, that that time and stuff like that. But still, it just seemed. And then the whole lost tri- 10 tribes of Israel. Oh, that's a bi- I think that was pretty big. So uh, Yeah, I mean, that was a big thing for the beginning and in the middle and the end. I mean, yeah, it was there. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Whoa, is this satire? Are you really concerned about the lost tribes of Israel? Well, and are you really, are you really serious about enslaving the lost tribes of yeah. Israel? <laughs> right. Like, okay. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Nathan. What were you going to say about the oh, lost I tribes mean, of Israel? Oh, I mean, that just really was a big point because it was strange reading this. Um, and then all of a sudden you realize about, I don't know, like a quarter through that he's a religious fanatic. And it's and it's not unreasonable <laughs> given the time, I suppose. I mean, I, I always, you know, whenever it's whenever it's another century, I'm always like, well, I guess that was kind of the, the era or people did missions or that was a big deal. And but the idea that he actually had stumbled upon the lost tribes of Israel at first, this is kind of like a, I said this before, it's kind of like a Gulliver's Travels or a um, Alice in Wonderland. It's, you know, it's not absurd all the time, you know, I've but you, you do get a different uh, lens to see people acting and behaving and it's sometimes crazy and wonky and all that. But then it seemed like maybe there was, was he really saying that it's actually possible that there it was? I mean, you know, and so it just seemed to be a big uh, point of contention for this character. And I wasn't sure, having no background on Samuel Butler, whether it was his desire to, I don't know, see the world be bettered through Christianity or something. So, yeah, I don't know if it's genuine or it's just maybe an instinct that a traveling person would have. Maybe an English traveler would. Any traveler is going to say, "Okay, where I am, and there are the lost tribes of Israel here." I don't oh no, not that point. he would come up with that. I think that that is a realistic possibility in the novel, where other things are not quite so realistic. But that's a, a possible realistic thing that he had tied in here, so that it's not just a fanciful kingdom. It may really actually be a secluded group of people who once lived on the earth. You know, kind of like the Croatan or the the tribe that left in Roanoke or whatever. But he has right, this other right. thing that he says about the English personality, which is to want to share the ideas and opinions that are conducive for you personally. I mean, and this is America right now, too. I mean, you know, I'm guilty of this. Uh, but, you know, trying to get people to do as you do. And he said that he had to, like, let it drop sometimes uh, being in Erewhon. So I'm not sure if this is maybe a, 
a characteristic instinct of the English that this character is bringing forward with him with an eye to biblical history and trying to figure out the status of, you know, these peoples and whether they can be converted. And, you know, that was probably like a really big deal. That would be being a good Christian, you know, so I don't ally myself with the character, though. I just wonder how much this comes from the author or the character is just helping us understand this exploration because that's what an English person would do. They would go out with the missionary ideal and they would try and make contact and bring it back to the kingdom. All right. Well, then let me ask you this. In your opinion and everybody else's opinion, would you say that this entire book is satire? What do you mean entire? That he never says a serious thing that doesn't have a double meaning? I, I don't think that's true. I think he does occasionally say things that are meant to be taken right on their face. But I think largely it's a work of satire. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either, because some of the things seem to be a aspiration. They're not a jest. But maybe I'm just not understanding the jest. So I'm not sure if what I like about it or what it, where I think he's being genuine is not more satire that I'm just not picking up. As far as the Lost Tribes go, I'm thinking that we're missing some biblical scholarship. And I wouldn't be surprised if, like, uh, in the Old Testament, you know, it says that uh, once the Messiah leads the Lost Tribes of Israel back to back to Jerusalem, that, you know, the, uh, the apocalypse will happen and there will be paradise on earth and all that stuff. Yeah, he may be a, a typical Englishman with this belief, is what I think. I mean, if it, it could be that if there is something like that in the books— then everybody who was a Christian, that's your highest possible aim. And that's the only thing that a, a man traveling under the kingdom and under the cross would think about coming across people. So if that's the case, then it makes sense. And it's not so much something we have to dig for. It's just putting a character into another world. And that character is something we don't really understand because we didn't you know, have the UK upbringing. Well, and the world was a much bigger mm. place at that time, too. Yeah. It wasn't all discovered and mapped in Google. I would hammer down that thinking that the the whole book is satire. I already mentioned that I don't think the uh, the main character there, Higgs, is the mouthpiece of Butler. I think Butler's trying to use him to show absurd positions. And even the whole tribe of Israel thing, and you know, we talked about at the beginning how he's basically enslaving these people and throwing that into question as far as, you know, how progressive, how is this I think at that time he would know that slavery and what that means is morally terrible. <laughs> I think that's easier for me, at least, to think of it as entirely satire because maybe I was, maybe I thought that there were some things that I read seemed right, were very straight. And, and he was saying something profound and very straight, but then I would read something and I was like, what, 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 what? So I get, I mean, I can get a lot if we look at it from a particular point of view, but I think it's kind of, it was harder for me, maybe because of when it was written or something, go in and out. You know, where am I? I know what you mean. I had some of the same difficulties, um, which maybe is intentional on his part. He wants you to do a little thinking for yourself. Um, maybe. But and, and, but I think some of that probably would have been easier, you know, if we'd been reading it as a contemporary novel. You know, now we're not. I did take the thing with the Ten Tribes of Israel to be another satirical point. I took him as taking another dig at the church because um, that last little part where he's showing how it's all sort of implicated, you know, the missionary attitude and system is implicated in, you know, the economics of it are implicated in, in the system. And it's couched in, you know, generosity and um, this selflessness. But in fact, it's very economically beneficial to go and colonize these places. And that was how they, you know, they sold it to themselves and their populations. And 
I think at the point when this novel was being written, I guess, you know, progressive thinkers like Butler, you know, who knows how long it had been going on, but they were at least questioning this uh, colonial way of life that was going on. He spent some time in New Zealand, which I think is, from what I understand, what this uh, landscape is kind of based on and this the colony is kind of based on and some of the things he saw there. From what I understand, he was at one point when he was younger, supposed to take a position with the church. And he had a bit of a loss of faith when he noticed that people who were baptized didn't have this uh, change in conduct afterwards. Oh, shucks. Yeah. He does this with Chowbok at one point, too, right? Like, he baptizes him, and then he realizes, like, he's still trying to get the alcohol. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he becomes a priest or something, doesn't he? He changes his name for the third time, or... Right. <laughs> yeah. They keep changing his name. Yeah, and I think that it's helpful for me to think about in this time in America, this is what like Blood Meridian was fictionalized, like 1860s, like the Western frontier, you know, like scalp hunting, not quite manifest destiny anymore. But I mean, there's like railroads going up and, you know, Chicago is just coming, uh, you know, like around. And so there, there was like still a lot of booning and expanding uh, going on. Does anyone want to do uh, favorite lines? Let's. Yeah. Uh, we, we'd done this before that we'd had like some kind of order. If anybody wants to just do like alphabetical or does anyone have uh, one they want to share just like up at the front? I mean, Dan, I'm looking at you, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I, I got one that I uh, noticed specifically as I was going through that I thought was, and there were a bunch, but this one I liked a lot. He says, I know not why, but all the noble stars hold in perfection, but for that, but for a very little moment. They soon reach a height from which they begin to decline, and when they have begun to decline, it is a pity that they cannot be knocked on the head, for an art is like a living organism, better dead than dying. There is no way of making an aged art young again. It must be born anew and grown up from infancy as a new thing, working out its own salvation from effort to effort in all fear and trembling. Um, that was my favorite line, too. <laughs> uh, oh, I, thought it was, I thought that that was... Interestingly, I don't agree with it. But I thought that it was a very interesting thing to write. I, I don't think that we've seen the end of magnificent works of art in many fields, despite the fact that they're, you know, may have seemed to reach their pinnacle. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you completely. It was it was an interesting thing to think about. I don't know if it's true, but uh, it's definitely true in some cases. I think, but uh, yeah, it's it's general. So, <laughs> well, uh, I have one here that that I like. I don't know that it's my favorite, but anyway. There's one that's really short, actually. Let me just read that one. I I thought of the map and the territory uh, whenever I I read this one. It's uh, on page 19. He was talking about uh, traveling first, and he says, I do not believe that any man could long retain his reason in such solitude unless he had the companionship of animals. One begins doubting one's own identity. I thought about that uh, identity because uh, in Hulebeck's book, he talks about going off to make his art and then coming back, uh, feeling the need to be socially recognized and to have existence again before he goes back off out into the wilderness. And I think it's important here because he's kind of like sheds himself up until finding Erewhon. You know, so it's interesting that he has, you know, such a strong identity with his master and where he's working. And then he leaves all of that and goes out and then, uh, you know, encounters these people. Anyway, that's not my favorite. Here is my favorite. This is on page 14. We next to never know when we are well off, but this cuts two ways. For if we did, we should perhaps know better when we are ill off also. And I have sometimes thought that there are as many ignorant of the one as of the other. 
There are few of us who are not protected from the keenest pain by our inability to see what it is that we have done, what we are suffering, what we truly are. Let us be grateful to the mirror for revealing to us our appearance only. Yeah, that one's great. I wanted to use that for this blog I've been working on. Um, well, I have one. I have another one. Uh, and it's par- and this is par- part of a sentence. I don't want to read the whole thing. I have seen a radiance upon the face of those who were worshiping the divine, either in art or nature, in picture or statue, in field or cloud or sea, in man, woman, or child, which I have never seen kindled by any talking about the nature and attributes of God. Mention but the word divinity, and our sense of the divine is clouded. <laughs> I had that one too. That's good. How about you, Cesare? You got one? Uh, I think I got one here. On uh, I, I read this book on uh, the Canadian version of a Kindle called a Kobo for the first time. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, uh, all my notes were just erased. <laughs> so. <laughs> Screw technology. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Page 107. Human language was too gross a vehicle of thought, thought being incapable of absolute translation. He added that as there can be no translation from one language into another, which shall not scant the meaning somewhat or enlarge upon it, so there is no language which can render thought without a jarring and a harshness somewhere, and so forth. All of which seemed to come to this in the end, that it was the custom of the country, and that of the Eroanians, who are conservative people, that the boy would have to begin compromising sooner or later, and this was part of his education in the art. Yeah, I have one. Am I the last? All right, this is it. You ready? This is the final statement on this. It is hard upon the duckling to have been hatched by a hen, but is it not also hard upon the hen to have hatched the duckling? Are you saying Mm. that Butler hatched a duckling? (laughs) (laughs) Are you calling this book waterfowl? Take it as you will. Daniel, I want you to know, in many ways, I found phenomenal things in this book. But I think the problem I had was that I didn't know what to trust. And I know we've dealt with uh, unreliable narrators before, I, Pale Fire, whatever, same thing. But, but I, I, I just, it was so untrustworthy, it's hard for me to like grab onto anything. It, it annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. I actually found, I found the conversation we've had much more enjoyable. Than much more. Experience. Much more. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I think that this is the first book we've read together that wasn't, that didn't have gorgeous writing. Not that I think that he's a bad writer. It's just that there wasn't a lot of really beautiful turns of phrase. And There's something kind of tiresome about it. I didn't mind it, but I thought that it was interesting. I was wondering, you know, like, talking about it, that we would, it would all be about ideas and not a lot about yeah. art. Yeah, I, I would so. agree with all this as well. I'd say that the aphorisms, if I think that's the right, uh, that's uh, what you were saying, Daniel. Th- those were really strong. I really like the sections and... I kind of wish we talked a little bit more about it, but we'll move on. But like the the unborn world of children, they know that are trying to get into the real world again. And the book of machines was really interesting. We talked a lot about it. There was a lot of like good, compelling sections, you know, that made this you know, a worthwhile read. But yeah, I think that there's maybe that lack of beauty, which, but here's the thing. It's not supposed to be just like flowery, right? Like there's something about a beautiful character, which is true. Um, and there was moments of that here. I think there was um, a lot of things that we touched on in our best lines were uh, kind of attributable to that. I thought it was better as a uh, philosophical work than as a work of literature. It pissed me off yeah. at points where, you know, the plot was basically the guy gets lost in mountains, he goes to Erewhon, and then, hey, I found this book. Let me read it to you. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like you're going <laughs> to... There 
had to be a better way of telling us <laughs> about that stuff. We've run into this kind of storytelling before, right? With the kind of like, well, I'm not going to be able to tell you how things were because I'm just a whatever character, but let me try. And they, you know, they give a go at it anyway. And um, there's, there's some kind of, this is, I wish there was a word that I could, uh, that was readily here for this kind of narration or this kind of, and maybe it was just the time, but it seems so familiar to do this. You know, like you've just got to trust me, you know, this adventure tale coming back. You can see a little bit of it in um, Mary Shelley's too. You know this uh, this couching a character within uh, you know an explorer who's just going to try and relate things. I don't know, and I guess I've been thrown a little bit uh, reading a lot of postmodern stuff where, like when we read Pale Fire, I mean, what's real there either? Yeah, well, the emphasis is all on form in you know later stuff, and this is so much like Cesari was saying, like a sort of series of treatises plopped down in the middle of what's ostensibly a book, but the plot just kind of just totally stagnates pretty early on, you know, and he just starts telling you views. And it's interesting. And I, I got very caught up in places, but, you know, then all of a sudden, whoa, it kicks back into gear and now we're doing the plot again. And there's a lot of telling and not showing, which you'd probably get crucified for in an American fiction workshop. <laughs> um, did you guys read the prefaces? I mean, he, uh, this was three different stories that he's strung together so he could get it published it was so i i don't know i cut him some slack for for that part i thought wow i mean if somebody handed me three stories and told me to make a book out of it i'd have a tough time <laughs> so he did okay <laughs> oh yeah that's good to know i didn't read that part that's good to know i would give more credit to you know trying to put food in his mouth um at the time as being a writer so yeah i think it was an early book for him too right? yeah um, but i mean i always wait to read the preface until the end I'll get a clue whether I need it for the story or not. And this was not needed for the story. So I wait till the end and then go back and read it so that nothing's ruined for me. But with this one, it was like, oh, right. Okay, I get it now. Yeah, didn't he? Wasn't he uh, try to make it as a painter and he couldn't make it as a painter? So he did this, which makes me extremely jealous and hate him. But uh, that's the petty side of me. Yeah, I read that. <laughs> you should not be allowed. You should not be allowed more than one You're artistic young. talent. Cesare, <laughs> give, give yourself a minute. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, well, they minute. said that paintings weren't very good. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I don't feel so bad. <laughs> okay.